Open your Bibles, though. If you're here, Philippians chapter 4, Bibles in the back. If uh, you don't have one, we're getting closer to the conclusion of our study together of the book of Philippians called Gospel Joy. Um, but as we move through this book, and we're almost concluded, we've got two more weeks of it, um, be prepared. We're going to jump into the book of Isaiah. The book of Isaiah, the gospel according to Isaiah is what we're calling it. Um, the name Isaiah, the prophet's name, means the Lord saves, or Yahweh is salvation, um, which we see clearly in chapter 2, excuse me, of Isaiah. Is that me? No. Okay. In Isaiah chapter 12, verse 2, we read these words. Behold, God is my salvation. I will trust and I will not be afraid. For the Lord God is my strength and my song, and he has become my salvation. So the book of Isaiah is, is, a, is one of the, probably the most greatest prophetic Old Testament book that pictures the Lord Jesus Christ and the gospel than any other Old Testament book. It includes the announcement of his coming, his virgin birth, his sacrificial death, his return for his own. It's a, it's a wonderful description as we walk through this book of Isaiah of the holiness of God and the purity and otherness in God, the judgment that, that comes with disobeying God, the brokenness of people. But Isaiah teaches us about the hope and the mercy and the grace and the kindness of God in the coming of the Savior who loves us and, and shows us mercy and saves his people from themselves. It's a great book. 66 chapters, long book. We'll be in it for a little while. Uh, it's the first major prophetic book we've studied together at King's Chapel. We've done lots of Old Testament and New Testament books, but uh, you have the major prophets and the minor prophets, uh, major and just in length, and this will be the first one. So we begin the second week of February in the book of Isaiah. So be reading that. Uh, 66 chapters, you've got a lot of work to do. Uh, be also, if I may ask, pray uh, specifically for me and the pastoral team. Um, it is a daunting task to take up 66 chapters, especially Old Testament prophetic work. Um, we're looking forward to what God's going to do, um, but we, we, we seek your prayers as well. But until then, Philippians 4. And we're moving into this book, into its conclusion, and we are now dealing with today's verse, uh, today's few verses we'll look at, I'll read in a moment. Um, where Paul is going to directly respond to the gift that was sent to him by the Philippian church through the uh, messenger, and his name is Epaphrodites. We'll see that this week and next week. If you remember, Paul's in Rome. He's under house arrest. He's in chains. He's chained to a Roman soldier, and he's awaiting the outcome of his arrest, a trial. Uh, Not sure what it's going to be. He's still uncertain. And before I read the text and get into the scripture, I want to read to you a description by a man who's from England. He's passed away. He's about a year, 100 years old. Uh, F.B. Meyer, if you've heard of him before. I want, to, I want to quote from him, and he kind of summarizes Paul's situation, the circumstances, the predicament that Paul's in at this moment in Philippians. So he writes this. Deprived of every comfort and cast as a lonely man on the shores of the great metropolis with every movement of his hands clanking a fetter and nothing before him but the lion's mouth or the sword, end quote. When you're a Roman prisoner chained to a Roman soldier in that day, the only way you can eat, the only way you can have something to drink, the only way you can have the basic needs is to supply them yourself or have somebody else supply them for you. You don't get three square meals, TV, cable, and full medical like you do today. That's not the way it worked. 
So as we consider Paul's predicament, his circumstance, and we consider the gift he's received, it also becomes more amazing, I think, as we consider that Paul is continually calling the church to have joy, to rejoice in the Lord, to, to rejoice in the defending and declaring of the gospel, to rejoice in the discipleship or the work of discipleship, to rejoice in the faithfulness of God's people, to rejoice in the humility and unity of the body of Christ, to rejoice in the Lord, his name is Jesus the Christ to rejoice in that gospel. And now Paul will say today in chapter 4, as we read verses 10 through 13, that he is rejoicing. Actually, it says he is greatly rejoicing in the renewed concern and care that the Philippian church has shown for him, in the, specifically in the gift that Epaphrodites brought to him while under Roman custody. That's the context. Let me read to you chapter 4 of the Word of God, verses 10 through 13. Here's God's holy and infallible Word. Chapter 4, verses 10 through 13 for today. Paul writes this, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You are indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity Not that I am speaking of being in need or I've learned in whatever circumstance or whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. May God a blessing to the reading of his word this morning. In chapter 3, Paul rehearses for us a time when he realized that his ancestry, his Hebrew background, and his human achievements, and all those things that he counted up, really counted as human excrement when it comes to being made right with God. And how the true gospel showed him that the righteousness required to have a right relationship with God was by faith alone in Christ alone. It was the righteousness of Christ. The righteousness from God that depends on faith, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. He then goes on to show us that we not only need to hold on to the truth of the gospel, that it's not about what we do, it's about what Christ has done, but also that we ought to press on, if you remember, to, to grow in the likeness of Christ, to grow in the power of the gospel. We need to press on, but we also, we looked at the past two weeks, we need to stand firm in the gospel. Stand firm in the Lord, he says in chapter 4, verse 1. We said standing firm in the Lord begins with rejoicing in the Lord always. Being united and considerate toward one another. Standing firm means we are not to be anxious about anything, but by everything with prayer, supplication, thanksgiving. And the peace of God will guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. And then last week we learned in order to stand firm, we need to think. We need to give proper weight, to give proper value, to dwell and to meditate on things that are true, that are honorable. Just, pure, lovely, commendable, any excellence, anything worthy of praise. We ought to dwell on those things. But not just that, Paul continues in verse chapter 4, verse 9, that we ought to practice them. Let them be a regular pattern of life. And when we do that, not only will the peace of God guard our hearts, but we'll have the God of peace will be with you. That's how you stand firm. That's where we ended last week. And now, interestingly enough, Paul chooses this time in his letter to wrap things up and to talk about contentment. Contentment. 
Although there seems to be a shift in subject with the verse, with verse 10, I rejoiced in the Lord, it does seem to me anyway that he's saying, you want to stand firm? You need joy, you need unity, you need prayer, you need proper thinking. The God of peace will be with you. But what you also need to stand firm is learn the secret of contentment. The secret of contentment. If you want to stand firm, you must be content. So what we're going to do today is we're going to look at four things. We're going to go to school today. Um, we're, we're, it's going to be hopefully a little practical for us as we think through, as Paul deals from theology to practicality, some of the things, what it means about contentment. So what we're going to learn is that contentment, first and foremost, 101, is God is sovereign. We're going to learn what contentment is not. A lot of times we're chasing after things that we think we'll find contentment in, and we won't. We'll learn that contentment is a learned experience. I wish I could say you could just, bam, get it, but you don't. And finally, it's not passivity. It's not just sitting back and doing nothing. We're going to look at that as we move forward. So Paul continues in his letter, chapter 4, verse 10. And look what it says with me. It says, I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned, but you had no opportunity. Paul received a material blessing from the Philippian church, church that he planted, one mentioned here by the hand of Epaphrodites. We'll look at that more again next week as well. And if you remember Epaphrodites, Paul mentions him in chapter 3, verse 25. He, when he came from Philippi to Rome, about 800-mile distance, he almost died. And he was, he was serving the Lord. He was, he was serving the church. He was serving Paul and brought this gift 800 miles to Rome while Paul was in prison. And he almost died, but God had mercy on him, if you remember. Philippian church had given Paul gifts. In verse 15 and 16, we'll see that he received the gift, maybe even more than one, while he was in Thessalonica. Paul is not, Paul is not denying material need. Paul makes it clear, though, where his rejoicing is in. Notice that. In the Lord. The greatest satisfaction Paul experienced was not on a human level, no matter how wonderful it was, it was the spiritual connection that he had. Their love for him because of Christ and his love for them because of the love of the Lord. Therefore, it was natural for a material gift to be given to someone, to give to Paul as an occasion to, to exalt a Christ-exalting joy. Paul was aware of their desire, but he realized that it was not within God's providence that they had any opportunity to help. We're not told why, we're just told there was no opportunity at some point. Paul knew that everything was under the sovereign, the sweet sovereign hand of God. And because his ways, God's ways, are always wise, Paul finds contentment in any circumstance he finds himself in or any condition and he is in. There's a Puritan writer named Je- Jeremiah Burroughs defined contentment as this. An inner sense of rest or peace that comes from being right with God and knowing that he is in control of all that happens, end quote. If you're struggling with being content or having discontent, it may well be that we are not, you are not, we are not allowing God to be God. You're, you're trying to be God yourself. Sounds kind of silly, but we do. He's in charge, but you and I want to be in charge. He's working all things together according to the counsel of 
His divine will, not your will or my will. Proverbs 16.9, in the heart of man plans his course, but the Lord determines his steps. Ephesians 1.11, in him, in Christ, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, God, who works all things according to the counsel of his will. The sovereignty of God is foundational for contentment. Unfortunately, I know brothers and sisters who love Jesus that have never wrestled with the sovereignty of God and when bad, bad things happen, things that are out of their control, it really sends them in a spin, almost out of control. Contentment, the foundation of contentment is in the sovereignty of God. What, what is the sovereignty of God? What do we mean when we say God is sovereign? When we talk about God is sovereign, we see in Scripture that God has the power and the right and the authority to govern all things. To govern all things according to his purpose, his wise and holy purposes. That's sovereignty. Providence, we talk about providence, when we, sit, when we use the word providence, and we're going to talk about that a little bit today, we're talking about the work that God is doing, the activity, the, 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 um, the continuous working that what God is doing to preserve, to govern, to provide, to manage his creation as he's working things out according to his holy, eternal plans and purposes for his glory and our good. All of history is moving toward God's intended purposes. And yes, Scripture teaches us that even knuckleheads like me (laughs) and the decisions that I make, right and wrong, wicked and good, are still within the sovereignty of God. But, but, but let's be clear, God is holy. God is a perfect, pure being. In him there is no darkness, there is no evil at all. And he allows and he permits the wicked to perform evil. And yet he overrules it and bends it according to his holy and wise purposes. Martin Lloyd-Jones said this, The same decree of God which ordains the moral law that prohibits and punishes sin also permits its occurrence. But it limits it and determines the precise channel to which it shall be confined and the precise end to which it shall be directed and overrules it, consequences for our good. As bad as things get, as disappointed as you may be, God is in control. I know this may sound shocking to you, but he's actually in control of America. No surprises. Remember the story of Joseph in the book of Genesis. I mean, you can find sovereignty and providence, God working through sinful and broken people all throughout Scripture, even the cross. He was handed over, Acts chapter 2 and Acts chapter 4 says, by sinful man, but it was determined and predetermined by God to crucify his son for salvation. Joseph said this about a famine that took place in Genesis to his story. You remember the story, his, his brothers were just a bunch of uh, not very nice brothers that beat him up, threw him in a pit. I'm not going to go through the whole story. 
And he's retelling, these, he's re, he's re, retelling the facts of this story in Genesis 45, Joseph is. And he says, God sent me before you to preserve you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Because Joseph was beaten and thrown in a pit by his wicked brothers, he was able to go to Egypt and have food and have all of Israel survive. Joseph recognized that the sinful actions of his brothers came under the great decree and sovereign will of God. Genesis chapter 50, verse 20. As for you, my wicked brothers, you meant evil against me. I'm not, I'm not, not going to say it's good. What you did was wrong. But God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. God was sovereign. Some of you here today are not content because you're not trusting and resting in the truth of God's sovereign control over the universe, every atom, everything going on in your life, you can trust God as a sovereign. Some people are not content because as you try and play God, your heart is searching for and looking for contentment in other places and other things. You're not finding contentment in God, you're finding, trying to find contentment in other stuff. Look at verse 11. Not that I am speaking of being in need... Rejoicing in the Lord, but I'm not speaking of need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. Paul is saying, thank you for the gift, but I'm not speaking to you, writing this letter to you, from being in need. Not in need. This is the guy that's been beaten, dragged out of cities. He's a guy who's chained to a Roman soldier with no privacy, no personal space. And he's saying, thank you, but it's not because I have need. Really, Paul? Paul learned that his contentment and satisfaction was not in the things you possess, obviously, because he has nothing. He's chained to a soldier, and yet he's content. How many people we know are trying to be content in things, in, in, in what the neighbors have, and what this one has, and what that one has? Not to saying we shouldn't work or provide, plan for the future, but contentment short-lived if our contentment is in stuff, anything of this world, because it can be taken in a moment, in a blink of an eye. Well, Paul, what is Paul saying here? I, uh, it was a commentary I read this week, Hendrickson. He says, Paul is trying to communicate this. He says that the satisfaction of a material need must not be construed as being either the real reason for or the measure of my joy. On the contrary, regardless of outward circumstances, I, Paul, would still be satisfied. My conversion experience and my subsequent trial for the sake of Christ and his gospel have taught me lessons. The path I traveled led me closer to Christ, to love him more, to rely upon his power, to have contentment in Christ is my riches, end quote. Paul's saying, look, thank you, thank you, but was also conveying with, with apostolic authority and truth and assurance that even though I'm thanking you for this gift, I'm saying keep your eyes on Jesus. I'm keeping my eyes on Christ. You should keep your eyes on Christ when it comes to contentment. It was Adrian Rogers said this. He said, happiness, um, let me find it. Happiness is a thermometer. Joy is a thermostat. Happiness is a thermometer. Joy is a thermostat. In other words, happiness is a thermometer that goes up and down depending on the circumstances and the conditions around you. You could change it. But joy 
stays stationed as it was where you set it at. Thermostat with a thermometer, depending on a circumstance. But, but a thermostat you set, and if you set it on Jesus and your joy is in the gospel and the joy is in the eternal work and person of Jesus, it stays the same. To find contentment in things of this world reminds me of a story I read about a, a dog who had, had a, a wonderful bone in his mouth and was enjoying it until he looked in a pool uh, and, and, and leaning over a, a lake and saw another dog with another great bone. It was his own. Snarling and barking at the dog who had the same or the better bone than he thought he had. Guess where it went? Yep. In the lake. The truth is, the tighter we hold on to stuff and try to find contentment in this world, the harder it hurts when it's being taken from us. Contentment does not come with stuff, but trusting that God is in control, He is sovereign. We find joy in Him, we find contentment in Him, in Him alone. Contentment is God is sovereign. What contentment is not? 201. Really important. Contentment, listen to me, is not having to rely totally on others. And, uh, excuse me, contentment is also not this self-reliance. I don't need anyone. Because you've got to have a proper expectation of others. You've got to know where others and gifts of others fit in the scheme of life to find contentment in God. Look at verse 10 again. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. The ESV used the word at length. If you have an NIV or an NAS, it used the word at last. It doesn't mean that Paul's impatient, but after many years, for whatever reason, they were now able to give again, and Paul is expressing gratefulness, and that's why the word um, at last can sound kind of negative. You know, finally... At last, I mean, really, how long is it going to take you to send me something? That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying you didn't have it before, but, but, but you have it now. And the word revive, very important word, it comes from the word uh, used to, to, for flowers to blooming in the spring. You know, perennials as they, as they pop up in, in the springtime. Paul's saying when, when Epaphrodite brought this gift to me while I'm chained to a soldier, it was like spring has sprung. Spring has sprung. And notice Paul, he's, he's, he's content. He, he's cutting them some slack, mentioning that they were, they were concerned. I, I appreciate that. I know you cared about me. You didn't really have the opportunity until now. And How, how could Paul be so loving and, and gentle with these people? Because he learned contentment 101. Right? It's trusting God. God is orchestrating the circumstances. God was going to meet his need in every circumstance. Knowing this kept Paul, listen, kept Paul from the possibility of becoming angry. Right? They, 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 they should have sent me something. Or manipulate them. Listen, I, I'm the apostle. You should feel bad. Be ashamed. Send me some money. Sometimes we have a, 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 a high expectation on what others should be doing, right? Quickly to judge. 
you should do this and you should do that. We expect others to meet our needs and when they don't do everything we expect because they can't or they won't, we get upset and we become more discontent. It's hard to hear but true. Our life, uh, discontentment, a lack of contentment of the heart can be very destructive because we begin to manipulate others to get what we want. We try to control others to get what we want rather than being content in the circumstances and trusting God. It goes like this. You, you, you don't give me what I think I need and you should be giving it to me. I'm going to try to make you feel bad and manipulate you so that you see the need and give it to me. Or I become angry and I bitter toward you. I mean, some people are just easily irritated with other people and what they do and don't do. We get bitter when they let us down. And that's a good sign that we're not being content in God. Paul doesn't say to the church, listen, I'm the church planner. (laughs) I'm the pastor. If I didn't hear that call, we learned in Acts 16, if I didn't hear the call or follow the vision that God gave me to come to Europe, to Macedonia, to preach the gospel in Philippi, all of you would go to hell, so y'all owe me something. You don't see that. He's content. He rejoices with them for giving to the Lord's work and rejoices with them for their faithfulness in providing a gift. Contentment is not relying totally on others, but it's also not self-reliance. Paul's not saying, listen, I don't need anything from anyone. I'm the captain of my own ship. I'm an island. I don't need anything from anyone. He's not trusting in his own resources. Some people, and I'm one of them, let me, let me, say, let me admit it, to you right now, my wife would agree with you, with me. I'm, I'm hard-headed. I, I find it difficult to accept help from others. I can't tell you the number of times that people like, look, you need help. You need to ask people for help, whatever it may be. If you need a helping hand, that we're brothers and sisters in Christ, let's lean on one another. No, 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 I don't want help. I don't want help. That's not contentment, it's pride, I know. Paul knew that he wasn't alone in his Christian walk and received the gifts from the church, and he shares the joy with them. Paul's thankful for the gift. Verse 14 says they've done well to share with him in troubles and in his affliction. We must develop a proper expectation of others, not the demanding from them what we think they should give, manipulating them or orchestrating to try to get what we want. We graciously and thankfully accept the help of others, but always remember that our ultimate contentment is in what God provides for us through the hands of others. Through the hands of others. We, got, we have to be careful because possessions are not going to satisfy and ultimately people can't provide what we're really desiring in our hearts. Finding contentment in God alone. God alone. And it can get ugly quickly. You, you, you ask the Holy Spirit to show you. Am I content? Am I, am I, am I in my discontent? Am I, am, I, am I really loving people? Am I really satisfied with God's place where I'm at right now? In um, Dave Platt's commentary, he writes uh, about not being content. He says this, Paul, Paul doesn't want his thanksgiving to be interpreted as a request for more money. Non-for-profits do it sometimes, he says. Thanks for the check, but you haven't sent anything lately. Do you really don't care for orphans? Do you hate them? Paul doesn't use flattery. Like, oh, give some money and I'll put a, I'll put a, 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 a plaque on the prison cell, a prison wall with your names on it. 
He says, finally, Paul avoids silence, too. Some people are afraid to show any gratitude, thinking maybe you'll, you'll puff them up. They're a hyper-spiritual person, he says. But Paul knows that those who serve and give faithfully should be honored. Paul has found a way, Paul has found a way to be content in God's sovereignty, in God's provision, in God's providence in his life, at the same time also to honor and to be thankful without strings attached for the gift others gave him. You see, sovereignty and trusting in the providence and the provision of God and thankfulness can happen without manipulation and anger if we trust God in our circumstances. Contentment is learned. 301. It's not automatic, right? Contentment is something that we have to go through in order to really rest and rely upon the Lord, in all our circumstances, verse 11. I'm not speaking of need, for I have what? Learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and in need. Now, the word learned, important word, it speaks of, of, of Paul entering into something that was new. Something that was new. The verb uh, tense, Paul has come to something he did not know before. The idea of learning something through his experience. It's important because contentment is not just a gift of God, but it is something that we experience through life. and We learn through life. Many times we learn contentment through hard and arduous and difficult times. It would be great to say that once we go through a a hard and difficult time in our life, once we get through that, we've learned the meaning of contentment. We're no longer, you know, um, devoted to stuff. This one single crisis taught me everything I need to learn, but that's just not the case. It's learned through experiencing uh, exposure, times of plenty and time of need. It involves the constant, that's why we come to church. We hear the word preached and even for myself and for you, we're coming back to the, to, the, to the reality that Christ is enough. You need to hear that. I need to hear that. And that, that involves us learning through the process, going to school. <laughs> the school of plenty. The school of need. Various testing. Some are hard, some are not so hard. But there's a process in which we learn. When I came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, I... I uh, many of you know I came through a very hard, hard drug addiction. Uh, arms riddled with, with needles and just really. Uh, but when I came to faith, I, there was a, a, within a, you know, a millisecond, there was at least a sense of hope. I, there was a sense, even at that moment, I didn't understand it all, that the guilt of my sins were removed. I didn't understand it, but there was something I had hope. I finally had some hope. But you know, and I know, there were so many things I had to learn over again. To laugh, to love, to forgive, to trust. I'm still learning to love, right? I'm still learning to love my wife. Not fast enough, but I'm learning. I'm going there. I'm getting there. You see, contentment is something we we discover and we uncover as we grow in our relationship with God and and whatever circumstance and situation that we find ourselves in. In a way, contentment is a sign of maturity. We're growing in the Lord. 
And as Paul grows in his relationship, as he goes through these circumstances, he's coming to the place of genuine contentment and satisfaction. Look what it says. He learned to be content through being brought low. Same verb used in Philippians 2 of Christ who humbled himself. There's a humility. There's a, there's a stepping down through being brought low and in abounding. I've learned, I've had, a, I've had my daily needs, a lot of it, during certain times being met, and then there are times that I had very little bit of what I needed, my daily needs are being met. He said, I learned the secret of face, facing plenty. Facing plenty and hunger, abundance and in need. The word facing plenty has to do with fattening up cattle or or, or animals. What Paul is saying, look, I've had plenty to eat. I've had an abundance of food. I've had an abundance of material need being met. And yet I've had also not much. Not much. You know who the most discontented people, I think, I got, no, I got no, this is my theory, you can agree or not agree, but those who have a lot of money. Ecclesiastes 5, Solomon writes, he who loves money will not be satisfied with money, nor he who loves wealth with his income. This is also vanity. Paul learned contentment. But hear me, family, hear me. We must admit, just going through the school of needs being met and needs not being met, through very hard times, not having much, and having prosperity and and having abundance of material need, doesn't necessarily mean we'll learn contentment. Just like coming to church for 30 years does not necessarily mean you're going to be a mature Christian. Because contentment is learned as we lean into and we're dependent upon preaching the gospel to ourselves. We're dependent upon Christ and his word. Webster, one dictionary, defines contentment like this. Contentment is being satisfied, not displeased, to be at peace with oneself. Paul, actually, that word contentment, borrowed it from the Stoics. The Stoics had a view, their philosophy had a view that in order to cope with life, in order to deal with life, you trusted no one. You trusted only in yourself. Stoic uh, Seneca uh, was a Stoic. He said, the happy man is content with his present lot, no matter what it is, and is reconciled to his circumstances, end quote want to be independent of all things, all people, trusting in no one and no other thing, doing everything for yourself, that's what contentment is. Paul borrows the word from the Stoics, but Paul does not give it a Stoic meaning. Verse 13 gives us what real contentment is. The secret of contentment. And what's interesting, look at verse 13. What's interesting is the word secret, Paul borrowed that from the mysterious religions. The the secret is is the false religions who have the secret that nobody could know. Only those involved in their cults. And he said, no, actually, it's a secret, but I'm going to tell you what it is. Because it's in Christ. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. 
Not, not being sufficient in myself to count anything as from myself. My sufficiency is in God. And so Christian contentment is rooted in our relationship with Christ. It flows from our communion and our union with the Lord. Now, you know this verse, right? This has got to be, I'm going to say probably one of the not, if not the most, or at least the top couple, top three or four, misquoted and quoted verse in all the Bible. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. Well, let's look at that a little bit closer. First of all, the word strengthened means means to have strengthened, to be strengthened from within. It's a picture of, of being strong because Jesus continually strengthens his followers. Contentment is the inner power of the Holy Spirit that brings contentment. It's, it's, it's not contentment in the place, but in a person. It's not contentment in the situation, it's contentment in the relationship with the Lord. And what Paul is saying is I'm strengthened by Christ wherever I go, whatever situation I find, the power of God within me bringing contentment to me because God gives it to me. In any and all circumstance, I find myself doing the will of God. That's the context, the will of God. Paul is talking about things that he was doing as he worshiped and and served the Lord. Someone once said, Christian contentment is the God-given ability to be satisfied with the loving provision of God in any and every situation. So for Paul, all things, I can do all things, his contentment in his material things is whether he has a lot or he has a little, that he's living it out, working it out, what God has called him to do, and God's called him to do what? To, to, to know Christ, he already gave it to us in his book, to know him and to make him known, to live on mission with Christ. I want to know him and the power of his resurrection. It's all over Philippians. Paul found his mission in life, that is to know and to love and to worship, to be found in Christ, and then to make Christ known by sharing the gospel with others. And now Christ has summoned him to do that. And then what he's saying is God will provide for him the power to do what God has called him to do. To live as Christ is what? To die, to live as Christ and to die is gain. Regardless, God will give you the power. I can do all things. The thing that God has called me to do, God will strengthen me to do it. Hudson Taylor, famous uh, quote from a missionary to China. When God's work is done in God's way for God's glory, it will never got, lack God's supply. God is not obligated to pay for our selfish schemes. He is obligated to support his ministry. End quote. <laughs> I can't help but remember this verse. I'm, I'm dating myself. Well, it was not that long ago. Vanda Holyfield, heavyweight fighter, right? You ever heard of him? Guy lost his ear. Didn't lose it, actually. It went somewhere in somebody's mouth, but that's another story. He comes out. It was all this hype for the fight when he fought Tyson, and you know, Tyson was the Muslim, and he was a Christian, and just crazy bad theology. But anyway... He comes out on his robe and says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That was this verse. As if to tell the world that beating somebody up in the name of Jesus is the mission. <laughs> all things does not mean all things. God is, listen, nobody's calling me from Albany Med with a delicate uh, brain surgery tonight saying, we need your help, Lou. We heard that you preached, all, you know, all things uh, through Christ who gives you strength. So ask him for strength and come on down and help me with this. It's not going to happen. 
Contentment is gained when our soul is settled on what God will provide as we work His way, His will. All that we need will be accomplished when He calls us, when we are recognizing and understanding what God had called us to do. So the will of God is the context and brings parameters to the strength that Paul knew. What happens with this verse is that people got to want to do their own thing. They're not really seeking the will of God. They're outside the, the known will of God. They, they want to do their own thing, and they just claim this verse that all things that Christ who gives me strength. Like, no, the parameters is, is what God has called you to do. God will provide for you to do, not your personal agenda. You've got to be very, very careful. Paul and all who are in Christ are God-sufficient as opposed to, as opposed to self-sufficient. It's rooted in the eternal God, not in the temporal self. I can do all things. I can do all things. I can do anything I am called to do through Christ who gives me the strength. He's confident that he will be given divine strength to do what God has called him to do. In all the circumstances, he'll find himself in. Every circumstance. He'll be equipped by the power of God to do what God has called him to do. I didn't have that up. I apologize. Lastly, it's kind of like a, just kind of like a wrap up. Contentment does not mean passivity. Paul has said already in chapter three, I've not been made perfect, but I press on. Paul already said in chapter two that we ought to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. And what I mean by this point here is that this has to do with with recognizing that there is, there is room, there is, there is a pursuit, there is a, 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 a work that has to be done in growing in our relationship with Christ and our relationship with one another. Not for our salvation, that's been done by Christ alone. But we have an obligation before the Lord because of our salvation to grow in what is called sanctification. Grow in our relationship with God. Grow in our relationship with one another. Contentment does not mean passivity. That we're just, we reach it, I'm going to put my feet up, and that's all I'm going to do until the Lord calls me home. That's my point. In Philippians, excuse me, in, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, Paul writes to young Timothy. And he tells him in verse 2 to teach others sound doctrine. We get down to verse 5b, because there are some, he says, who are depraved in mind and depraved of the truth. There are those who are depraved in mind, depraved of the truth. How? Imagining that godliness is a means of gain. So there are some who are saying, I'm doing all this good God stuff so I can get material gain. That's the prosperity gospel. They are depraved in mind and depraved in the truth. They are literally doing godliness for material gain. That's who they are. That's what Paul says. But, verse 6, godliness, pursuing the Lord, with contentment, trusting in him as well, not, being, not running after material things, is of great gain. You have materials, <laughs> things that you're chasing after, and then you have a relationship that you're chasing after. And Paul says the relationship, contentment in Christ through that relationship is of great gain. Why? Verse 7. We brought nothing into the world. We're taking nothing out of the world. If you have food, you have clothing, be content. 
But those who desire to be rich, prosperity gospel again, fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But, Timothy, you, man of God, flee these things. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, and gentleness. The point, contentment is not found in material things. You're bringing nothing into this world. You ain't taking nothing with you. But I want you to notice what Paul is saying to Timothy. Be godly. Seek the Lord. Not for material gain. Actually opposite. For your relationship. Trusting in God. Trust him in your, for your provision. Trust God. Do not chase money. Do not chase things of the world. Flee from those things. Be content with the basics. But pursue righteousness and godliness, faith, love, gentleness. In other words, we are to be content with, the, with God's basic provisions, but we are to pursue righteousness, godliness. So my point is that contentment is not a prescription for laziness when it comes to sanctification, growing in likeness of Jesus, godliness, pursuing Christ-likeness. Even our relationships, right? They too should be marked with love and gentleness and right living. So when the scripture says be content in, in every circumstance, it is, it is assuming that we're pursuing godliness. That's the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, to be more like Christ every day, to, to be more like Jesus until we see him face to face. There's always room to grow in our relationship with Christ. Again, we're not earning our salvation. I don't want you to hear me saying that. It's, it's being content in the gospel, okay? It's, let me say it this way. It's being content in the gospel that we are completely forgiven, wonderfully accepted, but never be content with the place where we at, where we are at spiritually. Uh, holiness and sanctification is always room to grow in the likeness of Christ. To pursue Christ is always, listen, there's always room to grow in our love for other people. There's always room to grow. For our, we're never to be content with our sin. So, so hear me today. Being content does not mean that, look, I, I, you know what? The passage just said, be content in every circumstance you're in. I, I, have, I have a lousy marriage. Things really aren't going well. I guess I'd just be content to that. That's not what I'm saying. You know what, I I'm, I'm, I'm really haven't grown spiritually. I haven't really got involved in any community groups, walking, walk of faith with other people. And the pastor said, be content in all your circumstances. I think I'll just skip all that. That's not, that's not what I'm saying. That's not what Paul is saying. Paul said, press on. Work out your salvation. Live life together. And Paul's words for us today are for those who are constantly yearning for something out there. They, they think they can find contentment and fulfillment and satisfaction rather than trusting in the providence, in the sovereign control of God. Today's a call for us to stop pursuing material things, trying to be satisfied and contented in. Don't become so dependent upon others that you walk around angry and frustrated all the time either. Learn to be content, listen, in the person and the provision of Christ in any and every circumstance. Not running from God, but trusting in his provision, trusting in his power to accomplish what God wants to do through you. That is to, to love him, to serve him, to worship him, to grow in him, to grow in love with others, to grow to love others more. 
have show grace and mercy to others, share the gospel with others, God will give you the strength in any circumstance you're in. He'll provide that for you. For Paul, it was always looking, Paul was always looking to exalt, exalt Jesus as his source of joy, as his source of strength, as his place of contentment, and his mission in life. Are you content today in all that God has provided for you? Are you content today with the circumstances you find yourself in? Trust God today. Trust in his provision today. Let us pray. Father, in a world that is troubled, in a country that is unsure, in such division, hatred, Father, we pray that we, your children, would rest and trust in you alone. You are our hope. You are our salvation. You are our God. And you are sovereign over the world. Lord, we pray that as your people, we'll take responsibility, absolutely, in the things we need to do and say. But Lord, we'll not try to manipulate, we will not become angry with others when they are not doing what we want them to do. But we'll rest in you and trust in you. We thank you for the salvation you've provided in Christ. We're thankful that you have sent your son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. And now, because of faith in him, we can be in a right relationship with you. And now we can know that we are not only your children, but you are working all things out for our good, your glory. Help us to trust you today and help us to rest in you today. And now, Lord, as we respond in song, we pray that our hearts would, that may, may be bound, may, may be struggling, may, may be searching uh, for contentment would, would find its rest in you, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.